0: The following message, entitled, The Upside-Down Kingdom, Part 3 of the series, The Beatitudes, was given by Joe Ryer on January 12, 2014 at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open to the book of Matthew, Chapter 5. Thanks for coming this morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Joe. Uh, thanks for, for risking some treacherous conditions to come as well. Um, we are in the third week of our series on the Beatitudes, and Mark Altrogi was going to preach this message, but his dad had to be taken to the hospital this morning um, for having chest pain. So I thought we could pray for Mark and for J.J. Altrogi, who is 95 years old, and, um, and just ask God for help for this message as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you that there is so much comfort in that one word, Father. You are our Father, and you care for us in an infinite, loving way. And Lord, we pray for J.J. this morning. Lord, we thank you for the 95 years of life you have given him so far. We thank you for his love and passion for you. We thank you that he has never stopped serving you. And we pray that you would have mercy on him this morning. But We pray for Mark as well, that you would um, just give him a sweet time with his dad this morning in the hospital and just bring comfort to the entire family. And Holy Spirit, thank you that, that you are a God who speaks today and you have given us your word. And we pray that you would encourage us through your word. I pray every one of us would encounter you this morning. And Lord, I just ask for your help. As we go through your very words, Jesus, that you preached in the Sermon on the Mount. And Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, open to Matthew 5. And I'm going to read a larger section, which is verses 1 through 11. And then we're going to focus in on two main verses this morning. For the last several weeks, we've been slowly going through the Beatitudes. But I want to set the, the big picture before we drop back into the details. And the title of this message is called The Upside-Down Kingdom. The Upside-Down Kingdom. So look in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is Jesus. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And what's happening here in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is actually giving an entire sermon. So chapters 5, 6, and 7 capture the sermon which is referred to on the Sermon on the Mount. And before we drop back into the the specific two verses we're going to look at, I want to just have us, remind us of the wide lens of what's happening here. Because if we miss the wide lens, I think we're we're subject to misunderstand, misinterpret, and misapply these sayings, which are called the Beatitudes. Verse 1 and 2 are extremely important to understand what's happening here. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So the primary recipients of Jesus' words are followers of Jesus, people who have trusted in Jesus, people who are committed to Jesus, people who are his disciples. So these blessed sayings are not entry points into the kingdom of God, they are realities and should be growing realities for those who have followed Jesus, who have put their trust in Jesus. And if we were in that crowd, when Jesus sat down on the mountaintop, we would have been shocked by the sayings. We would have been completely amazed by the sayings, because they are opposite sayings, of what a worldly, successful person or king or kingdom would be promoting. And so he's, he's speaking to followers of his who have been beaten and tattered by the, the world, the cares of the life. They have an awareness of their poor in spirit. They have mourned their, their poverty of spirit. They have probably suffered loss. They, they may not have much money. They are meek. They are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They are being merciful even to people who do not treat them kindly. They are not seeking joy in impurity, but in purity. They are peacemakers, so when people are in disagreement, they don't take the position, have nothing to do with them. No, they seek to restore relationships. When people persecute them, they love them and continue to love them. It's an upside-down kingdom. To follow Jesus is to follow a master who has an entire different philosophy on everything. It's completely upside down. And in all of these beatitudes, there's a reality of the present and the future. So Jesus says, Blessed are you, are the poor in spirit. So there is a blessing presently. But then there's a future. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And each saying has a present reality and a future that we should be hoping for and looking forward to. And that's important. Because I think as Christians, we we have a tendency to to put a gauge on, on our favor and status with God based on how our circumstances are going. Based on how... Life is going. And if life is going well, then we must be blessed. If life is going poorly, then we must not be under God's favor. Jesus obliterates that idea. We're not going to look at this one in detail this morning, but when He says in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That. That implies physical and verbal persecution for following Jesus. And so if you're on the receiving end of beatings and imprisonments for Jesus, and you're gauging how you're doing with the Lord based on your present reality, then then you'd be all confused. But Jesus is saying, blessed are you, favored by God are you for doing all these things. And though there will be some blessing in this life, how oh, there will be great blessing in the life to come. As I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking it's, it's kind of like Christianity, being a Christian, being a part of a church, is, is sort of like we're all on a journey in these large wooden ships with big sails. And we set out on the journey, and we know it's going to be a good one, and we have food and supplies and maybe friendships. But as the journey continues, we face bad weather we face hardship, maybe the food runs out, people get sick, the sails begin to get all tattered, and yet there are times in the journey where the sun is shining and the air is warm and there is temporal blessing and we rejoice in that time. But it's like being on a journey where we know the ultimate destination is sunny all the time, is warm all the time, is abundant in food and provision all all the time. That there's no more strife and heartache and pain and sickness and sorrow. And that is what Jesus is trying to capture here. Oh, There is blessing in following and applying the truth in our Christian life. But the motivation is this future blessing. We may have a hard life for decades to come. But if you are following Jesus and keeping your eyes on Him and living for Him Blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of God. You will see God with your very eyes. And that should give us hope. And that has given every Christian hope from the first century to the present day. Those who have experienced great hardship. They kept their eyes on Jesus. And they knew one day they will be with Him forever. And all will be well. So that's the big lens. And that's an important big lens. Because we can lose sight of that as we're on this journey and we're getting beat up and tattered and torn. William Hendrickson says the following about this passage, about Jesus' sayings. He says this, That though everybody may consider his followers to be most wretched and unfortunate, So a sorry bunch, beat up, poor in spirit, maybe physically persecuted followers of Jesus. An unfortunate bunch. Maybe the intellectual would say, oh, they're just primitive in their belief of a Savior who lived 2,000 years ago. So maybe unfortunate. And though they themselves are by no means always filled with optimism regarding their own condition, in the sight of heaven and by the standards of its kingdom, they are happy indeed. Yes, quote, happy in the most exalted sense of the term. Hence, happy, blessed, filled with joy. Not only in this is this true because of the blessing in store for them in the future, but even because of their present state. Already, heaven's favor is resting upon them. Right at this moment, the light of their future bliss is beginning to engulf them. Even now, no matter how despised they may be, this is true for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon them. God's favor. If you want a definition of what does it mean to be blessed, both in the Old and New Testament, it means to have God's favor upon you. The word means means happy, but it's a God-centered happiness that we receive. So Psalm 32, 1 and 2 captures it well. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Favored by God is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Favored by God is the man... Against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So Jesus is talking to his disciples. And if you have trusted in Jesus, then you are blessed in the richest sense. The reality of from your earliest remembrance, even before, all of your sins against God, all of the expressions of your human nature, both in Immoral ways and self righteous ways, self dependent ways, all those sins that have gone against God and His holiness. All of those sins, every single one, if you are a believer in Jesus, were credited to Jesus. And Jesus took the hit. He took the punishment. And we are blessed because of that. We are favored by God because of that. It's important to get that, because if you view these Beatitudes as entry points to earn God's favor, then you're missing the entire reality that you have been blessed by God as a believer in Jesus Christ. But Jesus wants us to experience more blessing, more joy, more satisfaction in Him. And I think at times, depending on how you read these, it could be, wow, these feel heavy or hard or... Not that fun. But Jesus' aim is joy and satisfaction and hope that circumstances cannot take away and people cannot take away. It's a deep, strong satisfaction in the Lord. Which brings us to the first beatitude we're going to look at today. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful... For they shall receive mercy. So there's a present reality. Blessed, favored by God, are those of us who are merciful towards others. For they, future, shall receive mercy. This is an upside-down kingdom. Because our natural inclination, my natural inclination when sinned against, or when I see sin, is to want to exact justice. Mercy is the opposite of justice. When we receive mercy, we're not receiving justice. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the merciful, those who extend mercy to others. Now this doesn't mean if a crime is committed, it's appropriate for justice to occur. But this is talking about in relationships, in relation to others, we're to be merciful. So we live in a country that has laws and rules, and so there's a justice system that that God is sovereign over, and that's okay. But as we follow Jesus, we're to be merciful to one another. And if you wanted one word to sum up God's disposition to us as Christians, it's this word. Mercy. How has God looked upon us? How has He treated us? He's treated us with mercy. He has been merciful to us. And it's a big deal to Jesus. The psalmist David says in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 11 The Lord is merciful and gracious, He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. If you recognize God's holiness and your natural sinfulness, those three verses should be shocking to you. They should fill you with incredible joy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. What would it mean for God to deal with me or you according to your sins? It would mean eternal punishment. It would mean, rather than Jesus taking the wrath that you and I deserved, we take the wrath upon ourselves. It would mean eternal hell. It would mean experiencing God's fury forever. That's what we deserve as Christians. If you're not a Christian and you're you're here this morning, you need to know you are in a dangerous spot. There's nothing more dangerous in the world than living apart from God as His enemy. But God is merciful and He sent Jesus To live and die and conquer sin and death by rising from the grave to give you mercy. And you need mercy this morning. We all need mercy. But the entry point is one of huge mercy. So if you have not turned to Jesus, turn to Jesus now. Because God is real. He is holy. And He does not have to show us mercy. He could be just. He could give us all justice, but he hasn't. This room is filled with many of you who have received mercy. Well, why am I explaining all of this? Because that's the key to being merciful. If you have been on the receiving end of this infinite amount of mercy, then when we have relational conflicts or interpersonal conflicts with people. How can we not be merciful to others in light of how merciful God has been to us? Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful. Favored by God are those of you who have received God's mercy and are merciful to others. Just so you hear how big of a deal this is to Jesus, He's going to give a parable, and the parable in your Bible probably says the unmerciful servant. And it's meant to jar us and remind us of the mercy that we have received. So, Brian, if you could put up Matthew 18, verses 21 um, through 35. Peter asked Jesus a question. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him. Now, he doesn't mean physical brother, but those of you this morning who have brothers and sisters, it, it applies to physical brothers and sisters. How many times should I forgive my brother or sister in the home when they sin against me? As many as seven times, he asked. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And this is not meant to you keep a log in your, your, your bedroom. Well, a little brother, he's at 73 today. So four more, and then I, I don't have to forgive him anymore. No, the idea is an infinite forgiveness. An ongoing forgiveness. Jesus tells parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Large amount. Money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had had so that the payment could be made. The servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. So you get the scene. Guy owes a lot of money to his master, he doesn't have any money to repay him. The master's going to sell the whole family. The guy's on his knees, pleading, begging, have mercy on me. He's imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. They probably had no money, he had no plan, but he's just trying to buy time, and we've all been in those situations. How about next week? <laughs> Come see me next week. Well, it goes on, verse 27. And out of pity for him... The master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. The master had pity. He saw him laying on the ground, pleading. And he had pity. He said, your debt, it's forgiven. That's mercy. He didn't exact justice. He gave him mercy. Now listen to this. But when that same servant, the one who had just been forgiven this huge debt, Went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii, a much smaller amount of money than what he had owed his master, a way, 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 way more insignificant amount of money. But he too had somebody owe him some money, so he goes to that person, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, "Pay what you owe." This is the guy who had just been forgiven this large debt. You, you can feel something in this story about this guy. So his fellow servant, the guy's choking, fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. Same thing he did to his master. Have mercy on me. Have patience. Another week. Another month. I'll get some money. Have patience with me. When his fellow, verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He didn't give him mercy. He gave him justice. Into the slammer he goes. He's in jail. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, They were greatly distressed. They went and reported it to their master, the one who had forgiven the big debt, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and mercy on you. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So he moved from mercy to justice. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Back to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It doesn't go well with Jesus and God the Father if we are not merciful to others. Doesn't mean we're not a Christian, but the mark, one of the marks of us as Christians should be extending mercy to others because this great debt has been paid on our behalf. So we can think that you know maybe it applies to bigger circumstances in our lives, and it, it does, but it also applies to all the conflicts we have as spouses, all the conflicts we have as parents and children, or grown parents and grown children, or bosses and employees. When others look at us, they should see mercy, because we have received so much mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So there's a temporal blessing, and then there's a promise, a future blessing. Well, the future blessings, I think, can be confusing at times, can maybe press our Systematic theology. But Jesus clearly points to a future mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What, what does that mean? Well, What I think it means is it's, there's going to be a future judgment. There's going to be an ultimate judgment, and then there's a judgment for believers that the Bible talks about as well. This is not talking about our salvation. We are saved completely, totally, 100% based on Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection for us. Is that crystal clear? That's our salvation. That's our hope in life and death. Jesus. But 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. He's writing to Christians here. He's talking about something different than the separation between the chaff and the wheat, between Christian and non-Christian. And we don't have to maybe totally understand it to get the main point, that there is blessing both in this world and the world to come by being merciful. To others, It does not earn our salvation, but it does evidence our salvation. So how do we do it now? Well, in this very same sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Think about it this way. Would you want today for God to judge you the way maybe you have judged people over the last few weeks, months, or year? Just the random thoughts you have had throughout the day and week after a conversation or after seeing something on Facebook, is that the standard that you want God to judge you by? That is not the standard I want God to judge me by. I want God to judge me by Jesus. And I want God to judge me by this ever-growing mercy that's being shown in my life because I really appreciate and am growing in my understanding of the incredible mercy that I have received. Kent Hughes, a pastor, commentator, writes, Very few of us dare to pray, God, judge me as I judge my fellow men and women. The tone of our life is going to become the tone of our judgment. Not in salvation, but when we stand before Jesus Christ, which we will all do. So how do we kill that? How do we kill the judgmental spirit? How do we grow as a church and being merciful and patient with one another? James helps us. He says, James two twelve and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, how to, how to kill a judgmental spirit, you might be saying, well, I'm just naturally critical. I'm naturally quick to judge. Well, you're naturally a lot of things. But that's not good. I'm naturally all kinds of things that Jesus is killing inside of me. So that should never be an excuse for our sin. And James tells us mercy will triumph over judgment. It should overwhelm a critical spirit. It should overwhelm judgment. Because God has been so merciful to us. there's blessing as we grow in mercy. And the primary way to grow in mercy is to remember the mercy that we have received. Because in this upside down kingdom, we're not blessed when we hold people to justice. We're blessed when we extend mercy like the mercy that we have received. Here's the thing about the Sermon on the Mount and Christianity in general. The happiest Christians that I know, that I interact with, that are in this room and in other churches, are not those that have life just going smoothly. It's often those who have endured great trial and difficulty, sadness and sorrow, have even been sinned against in very significant ways, but continually put their eyes on Jesus. Continually turn from their sins when they sin. They're not perfect. And then they're reminded of the mercy that they have received. And they experience blessing in this life, but they are locked in, locked in in the future blessing that awaits us all. So I just wanted to close with verse 11, because this is true for all of us. There's blessing in this life, being a disciple of Jesus. But there is great, great, great blessing to come. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you. When they make fun of you. When they say, you need to bring justice into that situation. You need to go get that person. You need to go after them. You need to be quiet about Jesus. Blessed are you when others revile you And persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Listen to this. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Not in your temporal circumstance. For your reward is great in heaven. And you're in good company. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray and the band can come up. Lord, as we sing this last song, Lord, flood us with the reality of our salvation, of the mercy we have received. Give us joy. Strengthen us as a church. And Lord, if anyone is present who doesn't know you, would you rescue them now? Would you save them now? May they turn to you now and no longer live as an object of your wrath, but become an object of your mercy. Lord, we love you. We look to you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. You guys can stand.